Chapter Twenty Four of Nobody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cheryl Michelle. Nobody by Susan Warner. Chapter Twenty Four, The Carpenter. The day was a more than commonly busy one, so that the usual hours of lessons in Mrs. Barclay's room not come off it was not until late in the afternoon that lois went to her friend to tell her that mrs marks would send a little carriage in about an hour to fetch her mother and that mrs barclay also might ride as she would mrs barclay was sitting in her easy chair before the fire doing nothing and upon receipt of this information turned a very shadowed face towards the bringer of it what will you say to me if after all your aunt's kindness in asking me i do not go not go you are not well inquired lois anxiously i am quite well too well but something is the matter nothing new dear mrs barclay can i help you i do not think you can i am tired lois tired oh that is spending too much time giving lessons to imagine me i am so sorry it's nothing of the kind said mrs barclay stretching out her hand to take one of Lois's, which she retained in her own. If anything would take away this tired feeling, it's just that, Lois. Nothing refreshes me so much, or does me so much good. Then what tires you, Mrs. Barclay? Lois's face showed unaffected anxiety. Mrs. Barclay gave the hand she held a little squeeze. It's nothing new, my child, she said with a faint smile. I'm tired of life looking at the girl as she spoke she saw how unable her listener's mind was to comprehend her lois looked puzzled you do not know what i mean she said hardly i hope you never will it's a miserable feeling it is like what i fancy a withered autumn leaf is feeling if it were a sentient and an intelligent thing of no use to the branch which holds it fresh and power gone no reason for existence left it's work all done only i never did any work and was never of any particular use oh you cannot mean that cried lois much troubled and perplexed i keep going over today that little hymn you showed me that was found under the dead soldier's pillow the words run in my head and wake echoes i lay me down to sleep with little thought or care whether the waking find me here or there a bowing burdened head but there the speaker broke off abruptly and for a few minutes lois saw or guessed that she could not go on never mind that first she said beginning again it's the next do you remember my good right hand forgets it's cunning now to march the weary march i know not how i am not eager bold nor brave all that is past i am not ready to go at last at last i am too young to feel so mrs barclay went on after a pause which lois did not break but that is how i feel to-day i do not think one need or ought at any age lois said gently but her words were hardly regarded do you hear that wind said mrs barclay it's been singing and sighing in the chimney in that way all afternoon. It is Christmas, said Lois. 
Yes, it often sings so, and I like it, especially at Christmas time. It carries me back years. It takes me to my old home when I was a child. I think it must have sighed so around the house then. It takes me to a time when I was in my fresh young life and vigor, the unfolding leaf, when life was careless and cloudless, and I have kind of a homesickness tonight for my mother and father. All the days since that time I dare not think. Lois saw that rare tears had gathered in her friend's eyes, slowly and few, as they counted the people with whom hope is a lost friend, and her heart was filled with a great pang of sympathy. Yet she did not know how to speak. She recalled the verse of the soldier's hymn which Mrs. Barclay had passed over. A bowing burden head that only asks to rest, unquestioning upon a loving breast. She thought she knew what the grief was, but how to touch it? She sat still and silent, and perhaps even so spoke her sympathy better than any words could have done. And perhaps Mrs. Barclay felt it so, for she presently went on after a manner which was not like her usual reserve. Oh, that wind! Oh, that wind! It sweeps away all that's been between and puts my home and my childhood before me. But it makes me homesick, Lois. Can you not go on with the hymn, dear Mrs. Barclay? You know how it goes. My half-day's work is done, and this is on my part. I give a patient God my patient heart. What does he want with it? said the weary woman beside her. What? Oh, that is the very thing he wants of us, and of you, the one thing he cares about, that we would love him. I have not done a half-day's work, said the other, and my heart is not patient. It is only tired and dead. It is not that, said Lois. How very, very good you've been to imagine me. You've been good to me, and as your grandmother quoted this morning, no thanks are due when we only love those that love us. My heart does not seem to be alive, Lois, and you'd better go to your aunt's without me, dear. I would not be good company. But I cannot leave you so, exclaimed Lois, and she left her seat and sank upon her knees at her friend's side, still clasping the hand that had taken hers. Dear Mrs. Barclay, there is help. If you would give it, then there would be, you pretty creature, said Mrs. Barclay with her other hand, pushing the beautiful masses of red-brown hair right and left from Lois's brow. But there is one who can give it, and he is stronger than I, and loves you better. What makes you think so? Because he has promised. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mrs. Barclay said nothing, but she shook her head. It's a promise, Lois repeated. It is a promise. It is the king's promise, and he never breaks his word. How do you know, my child? You have never been where I am. No, said Lois. Not there. I have never felt just so. I have had all that life could give. I have had it, and knew I had it, and it is all gone. There is nothing left. There is this left, said Lois eagerly, which you have not tried. What? The promise of Christ. My dear, you do not know what you are talking of. Life is in its spring with you. But I know the king's promise, said Lois. How do you know it? I have tried it. But you have never had any occasion to try it, you heart-sound creature, said Mrs. Barclay, with again a caressing, admiring touch of Lois's brow. Oh, but indeed I have. 
not in need like yours i have never touched that i have never felt like that but in other need as great and as terrible and i know and everyone else who has ever tried knows that the lord keeps his word how have you tried mrs barclay asked abstractedly i needed the forgiveness of sin said lois letting her voice fall a little and deliverance from it you asked mrs barclay i was as unhappy as anybody could be until i got it when was that four years ago are you much different now from what you were before entirely i cannot imagine you in need of forgiveness what had you done i had done nothing whatever that i ought to have done i loved only myself i mean first and lived only to myself and my own pleasure and did my own will whose will do you do now your grandmother's not grandmother's first i do god's will as far as i know it and therefore you think you are forgiven i don't think i know said lois with a quick breath and it's not all therefore at all it is because i am converted or my sin is with the blood of christ and i love him he makes me happy it's easy to make you happy dear to me it is nothing left in the world nor the possibility of anything that wind is singing a dirge in my ears and it sweeps over a desert a desert where nothing green will grow any more the words were spoken very calmly there was no emotion visible that either threatened or promised tears a dull matter-of-fact perfectly clear and quiet utterance that almost broke lois's heart the water that was denied to the other eyes sprang to her own it was in the wilderness that the people were fed with manna she said with a great gush of feelings in both heart and voice it was when they were starving and had no food just then that they got the bread from heaven manna does not fall nowadays said mrs barclay with a faint smile oh yes it does there is your mistake because you do not know it does come look here mrs barclay she sprang up and went for a bible which lay on one of the tables and dropping to her knees again by mrs barclay's side showed her an open page look here i am the bread of life he that cometh unto me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that man may eat thereof and not die not die of weariness nor of anything else mrs barclay did look with a little curiosity at the words lois held before her but then she put down the book and took the girl in her arms holding her close and laying her head on lois's shoulder whether the words had moved her lois could not tell or whether it was the power of her own affection and sympathy mrs barclay did not speak and lois did not dare add another word they were still wrapped in each other's arms and one or two of lois's tears wet the other woman's cheek and there was no movement made by either of them until the door was suddenly opened and they sprang apart here's mr midgen announced the voice of miss charity shall he come in or ain't there time of all things why can't folks choose convenient times for doing what they have to do it passes me but it's because of the sinful world i suppose but what shall i tell him to go about his business and come new year's or next fourth of july you do not want to see him now lois said hastily but mrs barclay roused herself and begged that he might come in it is the carpenter i suppose said she mr midgen was a tall loose-jointed large-featured man with an undecided cast of countenance and slow movements 
which fit oddly to his big frame and powerful muscles he wore his working suit which hung about him in a flabby way and entered mrs barclay's room with his hat on hat and all his head made a sudden jerk of salutation to the lady good afternoon said he something i can do here yes mr Mitchin. i left work for you three days ago said lois just so i heard and here i be wall i never seen a room with so many books in it lois you must be like a cow in clover if you half as fond of em as i be you're fond of reading mr Midgen? said mrs barclay wall i think so but what's in em all he came forward into the room and picked a volume from the table mrs barclay watched him he opened the book and stood still eagerly scanning the page for a minute or two lamps of architecture said he then scanning the title page that's beyond me the only lamps of architecture i ever see was in Chimpuasha. is them that stands up to the depot by the railroad but here's truth and sacrifice and i don't know what all hope and love i suspect wall them's good lamps to light up anything by only i don't make out whatever they can have to do with buildings he picked up another volume what's this said he tain't my native tongue what do you call it lois that's french mr Mitchin. that's french eh said he turning over the leaves i want to know don't look as though there were any sense in it what is it about now it's a story of a man who was king of rome a long time ago king of rome what's his name not romulus and remus i suppose no he came just after romulus did eh then you suppose there ever was such a man as romulus probably mrs barclay now said when a story gets form and lives there's generally something of fact to serve as a foundation for it you think that said the carver well i can tell you stories i had form enough of life enough in em to do a great deal of work and then yet grew up out of nothing but smoke there was governor denver he was governor over this state for a bell and he was a champuasha man so we all knew him and thought lots of him he was sought against drinking maybe you don't think there's harm in wine and the like well i've not been accustomed to think that there was any harm in it certainly unless taken immoderately ah but how you going to fix what's moderately there's a pinch what's a gallon for me it's only a pint for you well governor denver didn't believe in having nothing to do with the blame stuff and he'd taken the pledge again it and he was known for an out-and-out temperance man teetotal was a word with him while his daughter was married over there at new haven and they had a grand wedding and a good many of the folks was like you they thought there was no harm in it if one kept inside the pint you know and there was enough for everybody to have had his gallon and then they said the governor had taken his glass to his daughter's health or something like that wall wall all champuasha was talking about it and governor denver's friends was hanging her heads and didn't know what to say for whatever man thinks and thoughts is free he's bound to stand to what he says and particularly if he's taken his oath upon it so governor denver's friends was as worried as a steam vessel in fog when she can't hear the alarm bells and one said this and t'other said that and at last i couldn't stand to hear it no longer and i read him a letter to the governor and says i governor says i did you drink wine at your daughter lottie's wedding at new haven last month 
and if you'd believe me, he wrote me back. Jonathan Midgen, Esquire. Dear sir, I was in New York the day you mentioned, shaking with chills and fever. I never got to Lottie's wedding at all. What do you think of that? Overturns your theory a little, don't it? Weren't no sort of foundation for that story, and yet it did go round, and folks said it was so. That's a strong story for your side, Mr. Mitchin. Undoubtedly. Ain't it? La, bless you. There's nothing you can be certain of in this world. I don't believe in no Romulus and his wolf. Half of those books now, I have no doubt, tell lies. Another half, you don't know which it is. I cannot throw them away, however, just yet. And so, Mr. Mitchin, I want some shells to keep them off the floor. I should say you just did. Where'll you put them? The shells? All along that side of the room, I think. About six feet high. I'll hold them, said Mr. Minchin as he applied the measuring rule. Just shells, or do you want a bookcase fixed up all regular? Just shells. That's the prettiest bookcase to my thinking. That's as folks look at it, said Mr. Midgen, who apparently was of a different opinion. What'll they be? Mahogany, or walnut, or cherry, or maple, or pine? You can stain them any color. One thing's handsome, another thing's cheap, and I don't know yet whether you want to keep them cheap or handsome. We'll want both, Mr. Mitchin, said Lois. Hmm, maybe there's folks out there who knows how to combine both advantages, but I'm afraid I ain't one of them. Nothing that's cheap's handsome, to my way of thinking. You don't make much count of cheap things here anyhow, said he, surveying the room, and then he began his measuring going around the sides of the apartment to apply his rule to all the plain spaces. And Mrs. Barclay noticed how tenderly he handled the books which he had to move out of his way. Now and then he stopped to open one, and stood a man or two, peering into it. All this while his hat was on. "'Should like to read this,' he remarked with a volume of Macaulay essays in his hand. "'That's well written, but a man can't read all the world,' he went on, and as he laid out his hands again. Much study is a weariness to the flesh. Utter all, suppose a man be no wiser if he read all you got here. The biggest fool I ever knowed was the man that had read the most. How did he show his folly? Mrs. Barclay asked. Well, it's a story Lois knows. He was dreadfully sought on a little grandchild he had. His children was all dead, and he had just this one left, and she was a little girl. And he never let her out of his sight, nor she him, until one day he had to go to Boston for some business and he couldn't take her, and he said he knowed some harm had come. Do you believe in presentiments? Sometimes, said Mrs. Barclay. How should a man have presentiments of what's coming? I cannot answer that. No, nor anybody else. It ain't reason. I believe the presentiments make the things come. What was the case in this instance? Well, I don't see how it could. When he come back from Boston, the little girl was dead but she was as well as ever when he went away. Ain't that curious? Certainly, if it's true. Well, I ain't telling you nothing but the truth. The whole town knows it. Tain't no secret. Twas old Mr. Roderick, you know, Lois, lived up yonder on the road to the ferry. After he came back from the funeral, he shut himself up in the room where his grandchild had been, and nobody ever see him no more that day. Well, twas the folks in the house, and there weren't many of them. But he never went out, and he never went out for seven years. And at the end of seven years, he had to. There was money in it, and folks don't mind nothing else they minds mammon, you know. So he went out, 
and as soon as he was out of the house the women folks they made a rush for the room for to clean it if you believe me it hain't been cleaned all those years and i expect twas in a condition but the women likes nothing better and as they open some door or another of a closet or that out runs a little white mouse and it run clear off they couldn't catch anyway and they tried every way it was gone they were scared for they knowed the old man's ways it wasn't a closet either it was in it was some piece of furniture i'm blessed if i can remember what they called it the mouse was gone and the women folks was scared and to be sure when mr roderick come home he went as straight as a line to, to that there door where the mouse was and they say he made a terrible rumpus when he couldn't find it but arter that the spell was broke like and he lived pretty much as other folks did you say six feet that'll be high enough and then you may leave a space of eight or ten feet on that side from the window to window without any yes that'll be kind of lopsided won't it all is like to see things samely while you do with all that space of emptiness it'll look awful bare i'll put something else there what do you suppose that white mouse had to do with your old gentleman's seclusion seclusion live and shut up you mean why don't you see he believed the mouse was the spirit of the child leastways the spirit of the child was in it you see when he got back from the funeral the first thing his eyes lit on was that air white mouse and it was white you see and that ain't a common color for a mouse and when it got into his head and couldn't get it out that that was ella spirit it might have been for all i can say but after that day it was gone you think the child spirit might have been in the mouse who knows i never say nothing i don't know nor deny nothing i do know ain't that a good principle but you know better than that mr mitchin said lois well i don't maybe you do lois but according to my lights i don't know you'll have em walnut won't you that'll look more like furniture are you coming the wagon's here lois said madge opening the door is mrs barclay ready we'll be in two minutes replied the lady yes mr mitchin let em be walnut and good evening yes lois i'm quite roused up now and i will go with you i'll walk dear i prefer it End of chapter twenty four recording by cheryl michelle